Hey everybody, this is Marina, your podcast host at Unbossed. Here we go. At Unbossed, I interview amazing women in underrepresented fields. There is so much women power in the world that I want to provide this woman a platform to tell their story. Please connect with us at www.unbossed.io and please consider supporting by sharing, liking, and commenting on all your Netflix friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for our guest, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and YouTube, donate by clicking on the anchor link, and help me continue to deliver your content. I hope you enjoy, and welcome to the show. And this is going to be another great interview. So, Christine, one of the questions that I always ask in the beginning, and we're going to continue talking about our experience, but like, how, where did you grow up? How did you grow up? Who was Christine as a little girl? And I know you already told me you studied philosophy, so it's not the traditional tech career. Let's jump no. into that. Okay, so I think my childhood informs a lot. If When you know me and you work with me and I tell you about my childhood, you're like, oh my God, it explains so much. I'm the oldest of seven children. I just was born into organizing things. I'm comfortable in chaos. I love people and the energy of people. And I think that comes from, you know, having a three bedroom house with seven kids and two parents, right? Um, <laughs> we moved a lot when I was young. So I'm I'm comfortable with, with that aspect of life. And I got to see my dad go back and get his graduate degree when I was in like the first grade. So I was like six and seven years old. And I got to see my dad go back to college and wow. work hard. And that's a, it's pretty cool to be on the front row of seeing your parents' career develop and unfold and build over time. Um, I studied philosophy because my father told me study what you love i swear it will work out and i i wasn't certain that he was right until i got into into tech and i was like oh my gosh he was a genius i don't know if you know but there's an old there's an old saying um mark twain used to say that there are three stages of life my my father knows everything my father basically doesn't know shit, and my father know what a smart man my father is. And so I'm definitely in the third mm -hmm. stage. I think he's very smart. Uh, but I, I grew up in this rambunctious um, ecosystem of really different people. I studied what I loved and I found my way to tech almost by accident. And I have been, for most of my, for a lot of my career, especially the first half of it, I was the only woman on my team for years. And over time I've become a, um, I guess a vigilante for representation and equality in tech, especially as a thinker, I recognize that when my team has a bunch of people that all went to the same schools and had the same life experiences, when we are faced with a technology problem that no one's ever seen before, the group all comes to the same conclusion and they celebrate mm. because it seems so smart because everybody got the same idea. But really yeah. what's happening is we missed all the other ideas because everybody followed the same patterns of thinking and we got to the same conclusion, which could be faulty. So I'm a, a huge advocate of what diversity does to the success of teams and the profitability of organizations. I'm a, a big advocate for women and people of color in our space. And I'm deeply concerned about attrition that's continued to happen. Um, even now we see attrition out of every level, Marina, like it's, we're losing young women in STEM programs. We're losing 
women out of the middle layer and people color people of color out of the middle layer and we're not making good strides in leadership so there are gaps it's not just compensation it's leadership and board representation so there's work to be done absolutely sorry so that's 100 percent agree absolutely <laughs> no you're, you're totally right um hindsight 2020 though because at the moment that you were there did you feel this gap or or not? Were you aware that you were the only woman in the space? I mean, I'm sure you felt it in some way, shape or form. I, I so I grew up hanging out with a bunch of guys and I was really comfortable hanging out with, with guys. Um, and so that part of my work was enjoyable. I was very comfortable. I was comfortable being inside of that group. I didn't realize until later in my career, though, how different my pay was, even though my contributions were significant, or how different my opportunities were for advancement. And as yeah. I started to become aware of gaps like that, and then I started when I thought about, oh, shoot, that's happening to me. Then I started looking around and realizing how it was happening to people around me. Um, one of the women that I mentor, she and I were talking a year and a half ago, and she was brand new to her team. She was a new grad. There was another new grad who started at the same time. He was a guy. Um, she said, she came to me and she said, so Christine, I need to ask you about something. He got put on a project. I got put on support. And they told me that a good way for me to learn was to cover the weekend hours. And so she said, when I first got hired to this team, they said, you'd, there are 10 people on the team, each of us take one weekend a month. And she said, now all of a sudden the story's changed and he's he needs to focus on his project. So I need to cover his weekends, but they've also told me they think that I can learn more by doing support work. And so now I'm doing like every other weekend. And I realized, gosh, this stuff is still going on 30 years oh later. God. Yeah, no, that's definitely one of the things that we all experience. Well, not all, but maybe most of us experience in, in tech. Um, another thing that I also like, let's let's maybe give the, the, the listeners a little bit of a rundown. Um, I don't want to diminish your whole career's experience, but you've worked right. for many amazing company, including uh -huh. Wolfsbagen and Dell, and Daughtry Business Solutions, McDonald's, Groupon, like you've, you've been around the block a couple of times, if you will. Um, and uh, <clears throat> tell us a little bit about your what roles you held uh, as your and your and your career progression throughout these roles. Great. Um, I started doing basically architecture work in my first job in tech, figuring out how to design computer networks and data centers. And our projects were chronically late, chronically over budget. So I proposed that someone should be in charge of making certain that the project just got delivered properly. And they said, try it for six months, let's see what happens. And it went really well. And that became a, a program management practice that, that, that I defined and that was still the heart of profitability for that organization. So um, I worked for a small privately held company and really knew that I needed to 
impress myself in a larger setting. And I went to work for Volkswagen. Volkswagen was amazing. I got big projects, my first team to manage a great management training program. And they, um, my next step for Volkswagen would have been to move like to the corporate headquarters. And my children thought that was a bad idea. So there, I have four children and they voted down that relocation. And, uh, so then my next job was with Dell and Dell gave me this huge team, 16 direct reports, um, doing delivery of complicated projects, um, but also struggling to perform. And so I took everything that Volkswagen taught me and I brought it to Dell in order to turn the team around. And we went from last in the United States to, to the top position in 22 months. It was a ton of work, but there I learned the, the, unbelievable impact of setting quarterly goals, of distilling large, complicated technical things down into components that people could understand and deliver. I really learned the value of measurement. I learned the value of understanding each of my people uniquely and understanding their skills. Mm. Um, so Dell was a wonderful experience. Dell offered me an opportunity to go to Boston, again, vetoed by the family stone. And um, <laughs> they had strong opinions, Marina, strong opinions. And um, I found my way to McDonald's and at McDonald's, I got to run um, a strategy for North America tech, which was, so fun and such a great scale. And I ran my first agile transformation, taking a waterfall team and having them start to do agile software delivery. Beautiful. And I learned so much about, about transitions in humans and how they react and how you have to reinforce and what works and what doesn't. And I took that experience into my next couple of companies and I was brought into Groupon to lead the agile transformation, um, which happened right at the start of COVID, which was boy, was that challenging. It was, you know, 1300 people, eight countries around the globe um, yeah. that switched from waterfall delivery to agile. It went really well. And we followed that immediately with objectives and key results, which is how all yes. the big tech companies set OKR. goals and track them. And, and yes, I love OKRs. I could talk about those all day. Um, and this whole time I've been mentoring people. I'd written a book about work-life balance because I realized a lot of this, the ways that working parents save time, other working parents don't know about. So I thought, man, this is a way to accelerate progress for all of us out there who are doing these two things at once. And my eldest daughter came to me about a year and a half ago, got a job as a people manager for the first time. She's a product manager and said, like, what books should I read? And I realized there wasn't one. So I kind mm -hmm. of, I started coaching her just through emails and the emails have become another book that comes out in the spring. And it's a practical guide for a brand nice. new manager. Um, and I yeah. think this is especially, well, I think it's challenging everywhere. But in tech, there's this pattern where someone's a brilliant software developer or someone's a brilliant architect. We're like, you are so good at what you do. You know what we're going to do? We're going to make you the manager of a team of software developers, or you are such a, a, a brilliant development team leader. We're going to make you the CTO. Yeah. And those two jobs have it's like a Venn diagram, right? There's parts of those two jobs that are the same. But there's also this whole new set of skills about delivering at a different scale that comes into play. And that's where I've found a lot of joy in this last year is helping people deliver at a completely new scale. Brilliant people, they just need to do it at a bigger scale with more people. Oh, love it. 
that's that's amazing by the way um i love all your experience that you just told us and um by the way kudos to yep. you for staying in tech by the way like um with all the dropout rates that we see today in the industry staying and having that representation i'm more i'm sure it was influential for so many people men and women that either work with you or saw you in the role so like i i kudos thanks my head it's sure. um there were a couple of leaders that i've had and seeing them in that role changed my career for me the, to see them succeed. Um, Deb Holifay is one of my favorite CIOs that I've ever worked for. She's currently CTO of Starbucks and she is brilliant and hardworking and unflappable. And to see her in that role just gave me this understanding that leadership was something that I was a good fit for. Um, mm. And you're right, there's something about seeing it that's so much more powerful than empty words or DEI programs, right? Absolutely. 100%. I believe that when people ask me, what is your, you know, uh, how do you guys, con your contribution as a woman in tech to the tech industry? It's like, I am a woman in tech in the tech industry. My contribution, my existence and my being in there, it's part of being able to make it diverse and, and, and being able to yeah. let others see me and I see others. And that's part of yeah. the whole game. Um, you told me about your family vetoing a couple of these decisions. <laughs> <laughs> and that was like so juicy. So I want to know more about that too, because that, that, that's the two sides of us, right? Like we have children and families and we are working and, and taking on roles. Um, how was that? I, I'm, I'm sure there's more to that. I would love to know more about that. And how do you decide with your family what decisions to make in those moments? Um, so the, oh my gosh, that's a multi-part answer. The first and important part of the answer is I moved a lot as a child okay. and it, it was not easy. It's yeah. really hard to make yeah. friends and then move from one city to another. In fact, yeah. I had four different elementary schools between kindergarten and fifth grade. It's, mm. it's a tough time. Um, so I, and my husband had been moved a lot too when he was younger. And we both kind of said, you know what, unless something's um, a life changing opportunity, we don't want to do this to our kids. Um, mm. But when these came up, we had, we had conversations as a family. Uh, Jim and I would talk first and we would say, okay. And he's had opportunities to relocate as well. And we would, we would talk about it and say, okay. So right now we're a two income family. If we do a relocation, we're going to lose our, you know, our nanny, our pediatrician, knowing where the grocery store is, dumb things like this, they take time to reset. So our pact with each other was that if either of us ever got a job that was gonna pay more than our two incomes pulled together, like that Ooh. we would consider. That's a game changing job. And then the other person could take six months off and make sure that our kids got re-registered for soccer, that we made certain that, that they got a chance to settle in, that we found all of these resources again. You cannot underestimate the network to support a family, can you? It's a, no. 
Yeah. It's a time intensive thing to build. It's an important thing yeah. to maintain. Um, and the, the other part that I don't know that I talked about when I told you about these vetoes, there were really important educational points for my kids. Mm -hmm. At one point, one of the jobs was like in middle school where they were getting ready to go to high school. And then the, the second offer to move, I had three kids in high school. And so they were, you know, one was the captain of her sports team and she had an independent study that she had designed with one of her favorite teachers. She was getting ready to apply to colleges, a relocation for a kid in that moment is is tough so mm. it was the right thing for our family but we like i said kept an open mind and really fully considered it didn't dismiss it out of hand um, and i went back you know in each of the cases i went back and tried to negotiate for taking on the responsibility without the relocation and in some cases i was partially successful um, but it was, I'm still, I don't regret it, but now uh, Jim and I laugh, we're kind of in our renaissance. And so all of our kids are like, you know, with, with great other people and doing work they love and in places in the country that they love. None of them are near us. They're all, all around the United States. And um, so now we're, we're untethered and it's kind of fun. So we travel a lot now. I know you, now you move, you're really right. on the move with your kids, um, do you feel like you're going to be hit with these same challenges when your daughters are older, when they're in like the high school age? Yeah, to be honest, I'm totally taking notes here because I'm like, okay, what should I do if I'm presented with this op this opportunity or situation? When my kids are older, all my children are fairly young. So at this age it doesn't even feel like they would be missing on anything in fact they would only be gaining experiences right. my daughters now speak right. they went six months ago from speaking only english from now speaking dutch and english and uh spanish with my parents and so it just seems like a whole overall like win-win of experiences as human beings uh but i can see how like being a kid in high school and having those moments it would mean a challenging time right um and uh i'm just like listening and learning and hopefully like yeah. get to be a great mom for my kids because that's really what we strive for i think in the end and i think it, you you bring up something that was really important to me and jim we talked about we didn't have our kids so someone else could raise them. And so a couple of the opportunities that we looked at, we knew we would have to get full-time care to take care of our kids for most of the day as we would go into offices. And both of us um, uh, asked ourselves, what life do we wanna live? And who do we wanna be? And who do we want our kids to be? And so we've, we've made decisions with that in mind. Absolutely. So you've been working remote or partially remote throughout your career? My whole career. All remote? Yeah. Or partially? Uh, no, no, partially. partially. Like, yeah. and, and more importantly, flex time. Flex so time. I, I would do things, I would work out deals with my bot. First of all, I'm really good at my job. And when you're excellent, it's a lot easier to ask for someone to let you start a little later, leave a little earlier, do work after hours, that kind of a thing. Um, so I flexed my hours 
and I've worked remotely. But then I've also like had times where I've been in the office for long hours too. And Jim and I have, have worked out the calendar. Every Sunday, we would sit down and we had this table that we'd put on the kitchen table, the two of us. And if he had to travel, he'd tell me which days he was going to be gone. And I'd write my name into the boxes. that would be like school drop off, school pickup, soccer practice pickup or whatever it was. So I'd write my name into the number of boxes that I needed to cover because he was going to be traveling. And then I did this thing that was really hard for me. Like I, I stopped talking and I took my hands away from the paper and I like sat on my hands and then I'd wait and he'd put his name in an equal number of boxes. And that was how we really got to the point that we started splitting things equally because when he was gone, I'd cover things. But then when he'd come back, we'd split them evenly. So that meant I got like, you know, the 30% I covered plus, you know, the other yeah. part and the numbers did not work out. Uh, but that was a, a critical thing for us. But on those days that I had to drop off and pick up school, I didn't get to the office until nine. I left at 2.30, uh, but I would finish my work up in the evenings. And it's interesting to hear this conversation about hybrid and hear these old style leaders who are like, people need to be in person. And I heard, uh, I was listening to a panel and my 30 year old daughter was on the panel and somebody said something along those lines that we need to be in person in order to be, to be successful. And I watched her face and I could, I could tell we were feeling the same thing. And she spoke up and she said, I believe that butts in seats supports poor managers poor managers can get away with not understanding exactly what people are working on or understanding if their people are really getting work done that they committed to when they look at them. When they don't look at them, the manager has to be structured and organized and actually really understand each of their people and understand the difference between who can make a commitment and who can't and who can estimate well and who's still working on that muscle. Um, so I'm a passionate believer in this hybrid model can be not just successful, it can force a new rigor in leaders that doesn't exist now. I like that because it speaks to the evolution of uh, middle management, if you will. Um, it speaks to, you know, a lot of people sometimes are confused about what do I do as a first time manager or at entry level? Like what, what are my tasks? What are my responsibilities? And right. right now it feels like the answer is it depends of the company. It depends of you and it depends, right? But there's some core fundamental things that should happen as a manager that perhaps right. don't happen all the time, like you said. And it's That's to support poor management across the, across the table. And the truth is, is that these core things have to be taught. They like have they're to not taught. something that you yes. instinctively know. Um, yes. And they can be taught. Management, I really believe management is not a, a inherent talent that you're born with or you're not. I believe it's something, it's a methodology that's learned. 
Great. And so I know you have other tips um, from your first book um, yeah. that um, be, you mentioned the calendar thing, and that was part of uh, yeah. the suggestions for your book. I just want to know a couple of more tips, one of a couple of more of your favorite ones from okay. your first book. My favorite ones? Okay. Um, so both of these tips horrify my mom, but they <laughs> Great. both work. I love those. They, they both work. <laughs> really well um years ago i was like giving my kids a bath i live in chicago it gets very cold here and everybody was shivering and i was getting ready to put them in their pajamas to put them to bed and already i was thinking ahead to the next morning when they were going to wake up and they were going to be all cozy in their beds and i was going to have to tell them to take off their warm pajamas and put on their cold clothes and like every morning it was a battle there were tears it took forever and so that night i was so tired that night i was like everybody's going to bed in their school clothes and they just started laughing but their school clothes were like like little leggings and turtlenecks and you know comfortable comfortable pants with elastic around the bottom and i thought you know what i'm just gonna do this for one night and they slept really well we got up in the morning all i had to do now keep in mind i had four kids under the age of eight so all I had to do yeah. was like slip their little feet into their little shoes and we got downstairs to have breakfast and it was 20 minutes earlier than we normally got down. And I realized, wow. oh, I, I am I am doing this every day. Cause you start to add up 20 minutes and you're like, man, 20 minutes over three days is an hour. And you start to think if I'm saving an hour or two a week on doing this little thing, oh my God, I could get a creative new project done at work, I could do something that, that could be a game changer for my career or things like that. So, um, so put, put your kids to bed in their school clothes. That's, that's one of my favorites. The second thing is that we evolved to doing something that Jim and I kind of jokingly call free range feeding, where we, um, we decided that instead of telling our kids, oh, you have to wait until it's dinner time, um, which then you end up with like unhappy little creatures who are starving and waiting and when is it going to be ready? And we went through that cycle and then we just decided, you know what, heck with it, eat whatever you want. We didn't keep junk stuff in the house anyways. And so we put on the lower shelves over the refrigerator, we had like yogurt and cheese and apples and they could get pretzels out if they wanted to. And um, they were able to get whatever they wanted, whenever they wanted it. And they would just eat when they were hungry and not when they weren't. And sometimes like we'd go to sit down for dinner and there'd be someone who had just eaten like an apple and a bunch of string cheese or something. And the rule was you have to come to the table for conversation. You don't necessarily have to eat, but come for conversation. And, and it worked really well. So they've grown up with healthy eating habits. They eat when they're hungry. They don't when they're not. Um, and it took so much stress out of, out of our, lives um to have that but you know i grew up in a household where you know when you're feeding nine people it does help to have a schedule right but yeah. um so those two things really um you know caught my mom off guard when she came to visit she was just <laughs> horrified that they went to bed in their clothes and also horrified that like a three-year-old would go open the refrigerator get out cheese and i wouldn't be bothered by that as i was making dinner um it, but those those are like really practical things that helped us a lot i'd say you know another practical thing was changing my language so if somebody said like could you 
oh, let's do a meeting at three. I never said, I have a pediatrician's appointment. I need to get to Carline. I have to pick up from soccer. I just said, like, I have a conflict. And the neutrality of that language with an alternative time meant that I didn't reinforce the perception that my being a parent might somehow impact the quality of my work or my availability or my work ethic. I just left it out. Um, I used a phrase too start of business. So somebody would say like, Hey, could you do this for me? Like by Wednesday, I'd be like, great. Like start a business Thursday. Good. Because they had been thinking like Wednesday by five. But if I said start of business Thursday, my very worst case was if somebody got sick or if there was an emergency at home, I could finish it up early the next day. So there all these we all like, we all have to share our, what's your favorite tip? Like, what is something that you do that maybe your mom wouldn't have done that oh just God. gives you such peace? You know, um, I think, uh, I do so so my one of my things about by the way I love all your tips like like this like I love well what you know what I truly love is the 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 framework behind it and I think the theory is take away the things that give your family stress or take away the things that are stressful um so that you can enjoy your family more right so for instance for example for us getting dressed is not stressful because my daughters love to change their outfits. That's one of the things that they adore the most. So telling them to get in the clothes in their, you know, put on their clothes for the next day would be like a non, yeah. like a non-battle for me. Cause like my daughter comes out right. in the morning, she's like, what am I going to wear today? She's like so excited. I mean, that's, <laughs> it's not a thing for us. Right. But what, what, um, what has been um, something that I try to do <laughs> is um, I have, uh, <clears throat> they all have iPad times now, they all have screen times. And I set it um, on the internet router, I set the time limits on the router. So instead of yes. me being the bad guy that tells them do not watch TV, the internet router is set to a schedule. And so it's like, okay, well, internet is over. <laughs> it's gone. So like, and they know it's like, oh, okay, well, intern is over. There's no conflict because the intern is just down, right? So it's a, right. a non-issue for us anymore. Yep. Because then I was always the bad guy who said, no TV, no TV, right? Instead, uh -huh. it's just like something, a system that happens. Um, right. Some of the things that my mom does not like is, um, is that, um, you know, I talk, I tell a lot of the truth to my daughters. I've, I think I've been brought up with like a lot of like mysticism around being an adult and what things are. So my daughters ask a lot of questions and to my, the best of their understanding, I tell them always the truth. So they know that they can always come to me for the real truth, even if it's a curse word or something right. of like sexual nature. If they're not ready for their age, I say like you need to wait until you're older for that conversation. Right. But otherwise, I try to explain to them clearly in words what it means. And my mom just hates it because she was like, okay. you cannot talk to them like that. <laughs> Okay, so I have a recommendation for you. There's this book called It's So Amazing, and it's this 
kind of a picture book and it talks about like basically how babies happen and how people's bodies evolve over time and we gave it to our kids when they were really little and like it was always on the bookshelf you could look at it whenever you wanted to and they're drawings of naked people and explanations of things in there and it's um I like the track that you're on because the best time to talk about sex and having babies is when you're way too young to be having sex and babies, because then it's just like an interesting academic discussion, right? But if you have the discussion when someone's like in their teenage years, then, then there's like a context, like, do you think that I'm sneaky, you know, do you think that something's going on, you know, or do you not like this person that I'm dating? Like what is going on? And the, the, One thing that's made me feel a sense of optimism has been the results in the um, U.S. elections in the past couple of weeks because so many Mm – so many rights around reproductive freedom were were protected in this last round. And it is so critical for your daughters to understand these things because it's not just – their choice about when they become a parent, the timing of their choice does impact their career. There's no question about it. There's no way around it. It does. And it's a critical thing to be pursued thoughtfully. Don't you think? I think so. And I think like truth telling, especially to girls, um, I think is critical for their formation of thought as well. So yeah. that's what I'm going for. I'll let you know how this I, backfires. <laughs> I think it'll work well. Um, I did. I Yeah, I cannot tell this story on the podcast, but there was one point that we regretted having told um, our children the exact words for different body parts because one of our kids was using the exact words for body parts in preschool, which got... Yes just caused a little bit of a kerfuffle. My my kids get a lot of flag for that too in school. And Uh I go back and hear the teacher that that's the anatomically correct word for those parts of the body. It's like, there is no way around it. I'm sorry. We're not going to call it a hoochie or a goochie (laughs) or whatever that. (laughs) (laughs) I just, I just know. I just can't. Well, it's more, it's also for protection, right? Because when I ask my daughter at some point, has someone touched you in that place? She knows exactly what I mean. She knows exactly the place that I'm referring to. And so the answer is very clear to me. Yeah. Okay. So, um, when, so you told me about when did you first start thinking about work-life balance, right? right? Um, and um how a little bit of the book came to be um when um when do you think work life balance has become a, a topic that has impacted your 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 career and your you, you mentioned like when the timing when you have kids will impact your career and when we talk about work-life balance we are talking about kids but we also could be talking about potentially other activities right Right. a person may want to do do you know or can you tell me a little bit about when have you noticed in your career when this became a topic and and how did impact your career um um 
that that's a really great question man I have a couple different thoughts on that um, I'm gonna I have a, a story and a reference and um, a, a thought I think graduate programs are a place where this this comes into place so first of all there's a great book called the defining decade by dr. Meg Jay in it mm -hmm. she talks about um, your 20s and how some some people especially women are kind of careless with their 20s and they're like you know what I have years to be serious and have a career or get married like I'm going to um, do do things like um, you know do things that Feel my heart and she talks about how that advice is given to a lot of young women and then they do that but then they wake up in their 30s and their compensation is low because they never entered the professional job market until later than their other friends so they're years behind in terms of raises promotions salaries those kind of things and they can't do they don't live the same existence as some of their peers do they might struggle to find someone to be a long-term partner because they haven't been in circles that had unmarried potential partners in them it's a really fascinating book and she talks about don't don't waste your 20s don't lose your 20s and i would say that that is something that i've paid attention to is that that uh the 20s are a great time to jump into work and try different things and look to get career progression. I tell my daughters, like, go hard at compensation in your 20s because it sets a bedrock for what will come afterwards. And at that point, then you can start to negotiate different things. Um, so the, you talked about um, other things coming into play. I think graduate studies are a good example of work-life balance. So the, the Dr. J book is about when you put kind of your pleasure before your, um, your I, don't, I don't know if the right term is discipline or your discipline. plan around your career. Yeah, yeah. yeah maybe that's it. Um, so I, you know, Dr. J talks a little bit about making those decisions about um, about the softer side of the quality of life in your 20s. I would say another thing that I've noticed are decisions about graduate degrees. Sometimes uh, I notice people extend their educational period and that can have an impact on their work-life balance if you're working and trying to go to graduate school at the same time. Those things can come into play. In general, I think we all have a work-life balance issue when it comes to access and working remotely. Whether you have children or you're running a marathon or you're in graduate school, the boundaries of the workday have started to dissipate. And on one hand, that's good because Christine can drop her kids off at school or leave at two o'clock to get someone to a doctor's appointment. But the bad part about that is, is that then there's an expectation about what Christine might do before or after work hours to catch that up. And some of those expectations are fair and equitable. And some of those expectations are, are start to move us into spaces where we're working far too many hours or we're being given unreasonable expectations for delivery. I think work-life balance is one of those things that we speak about 
in terms of parenting, but the truth is it's a larger issue that each of us needs to step back from our job, probably at least every six months and say, who is it? What is it that I want to accomplish personally? And is what I'm doing right now contributing to that or detriment to that? Is working, I, Sheryl Sandberg is both a genius and an incomplete thinker. Um, I love <laughs> Lean In. I love that she told all of us, like, be brave, say yes to opportunities, lean in. Yeah. But I had a point in my career where I met someone who was leaning out and it was eye-opening for me. I was working on this yeah. huge project for a data center, had to go talk to some guy, a person in finance and this like, I don't know, 50 year old guy. Um, they're like, Oh, go ask Bob. So I went to ask Bob and we start working on something. And all of a sudden I was like, Bob, like, I don't mean to be rude, but I think you're overqualified for this job. And he just started laughing so hard. And I said, what is so funny? He said, Christine, um, it was, I was working for, for a very large company. He was like, I was a CFO for the national organization. And he said, my mom was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. She's in a care facility that's close by. And I retired and said, I'm going to move to the Chicago area because I want to be able to see my mom before I don't have her anymore. And, um, he said, one of my friends heard about that. And he's like, Bob, you're going to be so bored. And I was like, I think I probably am. And the friend was like, look, would you be interested in doing a financial analyst job for like a couple hours a day? Cause you're going to get more done in two hours than anybody else could get done in eight. And then you'd have something to do. I don't care when you come. I don't care when you leave. And so he'd show up every day about nine after he took his mom for a walk in the morning, he'd leave at about 1130. They'd go have lunch for a couple hours, talk. Um, and in the afternoons, he'd go back and they'd work crosswords together. And, do, and if she didn't want to talk, he would just sit with her, but he, stepped back into a, a limited hour, lower paying job because he made a deliberate decision about who he wanted to be in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I think that there's work-life balance for all of us is this critical assessment of where our, where we are, where our family is with what the options are. And then we make a decision. Um, Michelle Obama gave a great interview once. Somebody asked her, what surprises you about being the first lady? And she said, I'm always surprised at the number of young women who knock on my door and say, do you have a minute? And they come in, close the door and they sit down and they go, I don't understand. Like, how'd you do it with kids and a job? Like, I just don't understand how you did that. And what she, this is kind of fun because what the Obamas did is what the Stones did. We would sit down like every six months and we'd talk about what was going on. We'd talk about like, oh, um, every, the kids seem really stable and happy right now. I think it's cool if one of us keeps traveling or one of us keeps working some long hours, everything seems pretty stable. Or we'd come together and say like this, this um, child is struggling in school or struggling with, I don't know, general happiness right now, probably needs some more attention. Is there any way we can make adjustments to what we're doing that, that helps cover this? Um, and we would make decisions. We'd kind of decide whose job was primary. Maybe one of us took a job that was going to be brutal hours until we really got onboarded and figured it out. Then the other person would say, I got like, when I took a job at an organization that warned me that dinner meetings happened two or three nights a week, but they weren't always scheduled. Jim said, I got dinners. 
I got dinners. And so he covered dinner for like the first year that I was with that company so that I didn't have to say no. Um, so we just took turns. That's how we did it. Other people say this person's job is the primary job because of compensation. Um, but each of us need to stop and reassess. I love that. That is really good. And it speaks also to when you wrote the book was a different time than it is now with COVID, right? And you mentioned that everything is like more fluid. It's blending all together. I had my yes. um, nine, uh, 19-year-old niece, actually, she just got into UCLA. She just started this is her first semester there. Yay. She called me. She said... Um, I don't have work-life balance. And I was like, how do you know this word? <laughs> like you're 19, like how in the world are you having this yeah. vocabulary like that is manifesting in our younger generations? Like, yeah, I need separation from my school and my life. This is too much. Everything is blending all together and it just seems like too much. Yeah. Um, in that way, have you seen any differences in terms of like pre-COVID post-COVID of how you would recommend um, things or maybe some, uh, we, we know the new trends, right? But have you seen any, anything else that you can give us insight into um, based on when you wrote the book versus now? Oh my gosh, yes. Um, things have changed so much. I'm just gonna speak from personal experience. I didn't realize myself how little I was getting outside or how little physical activity I was getting when we were in the shelter stages of, of different points in the pandemic. And I didn't realize how it quietly crept up on me. And then all of a sudden I wasn't feeling well, but I didn't understand. I hadn't been moving a lot or a lot of like, I noticed that people were very like short tempered with each other when we were out in public. Like people were frustrated that somebody was wearing a mask. They were frustrated that somebody wasn't wearing a mask. Somebody would start coughing and everybody would yes. get nervous. So I feel like there's a lot of, we're all fierce and we're strong and we're smart. And when something goes wrong, we tell ourselves like, suck it up, get back in there and get this done. But the truth is, is that the pandemic added an extra amount of pressure to all of us. So where we might've yes. been thinking about work and life, I believe for the first time, health became a third burden on us, but right. we all kind of like brushed it aside. Like, oh, I got vaccinated, but there's still remnants of this worry of our physical health that are left behind. So I believe work-life balance got harder. And I think that we ignore the pressures on us from the pandemic because we're just tough and it's yeah. going to take a while, I think, for all of us to recover from it. That's my, that's my experience. And yeah, definitely. And, and like, I think the follow-up to that is like, as a person who's writing a book about management, how mm -hmm. has advice about management changed based on where people are at today? I love that you asked this. This is what gets me so energized about this. The things that I preach are all things that work, whether you're in person or hybrid or remote, okay. fully remote. They're all independent of seeing someone 
face to face and they always have been. And I didn't realize that my methodology for leadership was untethered from physical co-location until I started to write the book. And I realized like, oh shoot, this is why I feel so strongly about this because these are the practical yeah. things that work, whether you and I are on a Zoom, whether you're in one country, I'm in another country, they still work. Uh, so I do believe that leadership has to change and the pandemic and that the emergence of remote work can be the thing that forces a new management discipline. I see a lot of companies sliding back though, because it's just easier to force everybody to come into the office than it is to solve the problem that we haven't built good managers. Nice. So, and so tell me, give me a little bit of insight. Give us a little bit of juice about the book. What is the good manager that is, that is well equipped with dealing with not dealing with challenges in business, but also like helping people in their on their team. Right. I would say that a great manager, their first priority is to their team and their second priority is to themselves. So where like if I was getting accolades before I became a manager for delivering on my work, a critical pivot for me is to realize that the accolades I'm going to get when I'm a manager are for my team delivering. So my number one priority every day is, does my team have what they need to deliver? And to do that, I have to understand the work that I've committed to us doing as a group. And then I need to be able to say confidently, I know exactly what every single person on my team is working on in order to deliver that work. I can't be vague about it. I've got to be pretty specific. I have to be able to distill it down. And then to get for them to get their work done, I really need to know my team. People aren't the same, right? Some people are, some people are super disciplined on their own. And those people, you say, look, I need this in two weeks. Let me know if you need any help and you're fine. Other people who might be a little less mature and they're like, discipline or their ability to escalate an issue. If you tell that person, here's what you need to get done. I need it in two weeks. The chance that they're going to come see you on day nine and say, oh, Christine, I kind of had a question. <laughs> and you realize like, oh, shoot, it's not done. We can't recover. This is a crisis. So you have to know, like, who do you need interim checkpoints with? Who do you not need interim checkpoints with? Who who thrives really well when you compliment them? Who needs compliments? Who's kind of like, oh, whatever, I do not need to hear, I do not need to hear that. Um, just give me complicated work. Uh, when you understand your people and you understand the work, you are so powerful as a leader. Mm. And I would say that's the the heart of management that people kind of gloss over. They say things about being inspirational and they say things about, about um, they say aspirational things about, you know, um, dare to lead and, you know, um, be, be motivational. And the truth is you have to deliver and to deliver, you got to know your people and you got to know your work. Lovely. That's beautiful. I'm excited. I cannot wait to read it. So it comes out. Thanks. 
it comes out in late spring. Right now we're working on, we're doing this really fun thing where we're doing cover designs and oh. doing the interior design. So the book is written. So now it becomes a question of what, mm -hmm. what packaging communicates a message best of all. It's a fun part of the process. Nice. And so you wrote, well, you wrote two books. You raise your children, you're traveling with your husband, and you're working. Um, what else? What else are you doing? What's in the future? <laughs> um, I, I, I want more. <laughs> you want more? Oh my God. Um, I love a good party. So I love cooking for people. I love having a lot of people over and having food for them. Um, I love, uh, I really want the world to be a better place. And yeah. so everywhere that I speak, I always extend the offer for people to reach out to me if they have um, an opportunity that's coming up or they want to make a change. And so every week, I will have a series of half hour meetings of people who've reached out to me um, for help in different areas. So this week alone, I have eight. I just looked this morning to try to figure out how many were going on this week. I want the world to be better and the world will be better with more diverse people being parts of not only teams, but, but leadership groups as well. So I and mentor so for fun. I keep... Yes. What was that? I was going to say, is this like an open invitation? Could we say, hey, yes. if you need help it's an in open this invitation. area? Okay, great. Thank you. It's an open invitation. Um, and I just ask that people either talk to me virtually or if they're in Chicago, that they we find a coffee shop close by so I can sneak down and um, connect. And uh, I want the world to be better. So like this week, I have eight mentoring meetings. This week, it's been a good week. This week, I've helped five people get new jobs or promotions in different companies. I mean, the companies are like Google, Zillow, uh, The Mom Project. So um, we there's been some great results. And sometimes each of us, all we need is an advocate to help us prepare for something. The truth is, is I don't work any magic. People are really talented on their own. I just help them. Um, find the path that gets them there the fastest this is so lovely believe it or not we are a time thank you ah, so much i know by. i know it does i could talk for three hours straight i will do this one day but um thank you so much for coming on the podcast it's been lovely and um i would love to have you back once the book comes out i would love that um I hope that you and your daughters um, and your partner have a really lovely evening tonight. Thank you. Woo! There you have it. I hope you liked this episode and please don't forget to share, like, comment on the podcast link. Tell all your nachos and friends and family about it. Submit a recommendation for guests at Subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Donate by clicking on the anchor link and help me continue to make great episodes. You can find all this information on www.embossed.io. See you next time. Oh, that was good.